Please rise for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 19, the first 20 verses. Hear now God's Word. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So today we start our last leg of our journey through the book of Acts. Um, I did a summary last week to catch us up. We left off in October in chapter 18. And now we take up chapter 19. And so in our summary from last Sunday, I pointed out that there were some themes that we have seen so far. First, that the gospel, uh, beginning in the last chapter of the gospel of Luke and into Acts, the gospel is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. That's what Jesus taught. He said that Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were all talking about him. And he then stayed with his disciples for 40 days and taught them more. And we see that unfold through the book of Acts. Every time someone is speaking, they are pointing out places in the Old Testament where Jesus is the reference point. So the church is, second, the church is now acting on behalf of Jesus as his witnesses. So Jesus has ascended, uh, uh, and now they are his witnesses. Now there are false witnesses against the church, and then there are the true witnesses to God, and there is a mixed response to the gospel over and over. Some embrace the gospel, others are hostile to it. 
And so then we also saw the, see this theme through the book of Acts, and that is the universal scope of the gospel. It's for all the nations. Now, there's one more thing we must not forget, and that is that the church, especially as represented through the apostles, are extending the reach and the ministry of Jesus as he directs and empowers them uh, as his own body from the right hand of God the Father. So he's ascended. He is the head of the church. The church is his body. And as his body, they're now fanning out all across the world to represent him, to speak his word, to do acts in his name. And that's what the book of Acts is best. Really, the book is often called the Acts of the Apostles. It's really the Acts of Jesus, primarily through the apostles, but also through others, as we've seen. And so while the world continues to find much of this story to be unbelievable, and therefore they dismiss it perhaps as either exaggeration or fabrication, we would expect nothing less from unbelievers. They dismiss creation, they dismiss the great flood, the story of Goliath, Jonah, Daniel, and every other report of God's mighty works. They don't believe in God. And if what Luke writes is true, then they've got a problem. They've got to reckon with a risen Savior. Of course, Luke's version of events matches what we actually see in history, and this accounts for the rapid spread of the gospel and the rise of Christendom. A hundred years after Christ was nailed to the cross, the gospel is spreading throughout the entire earth. In the first few centuries, an obscure, minority, illegal sect changed the world. It swept in a new worldview to replace the old pagan worldview, and the intellectual reversal by itself was enormous. Is there a piece of land anywhere that cannot testify to the power of the gospel, how it triumphed and overthrew idols and unbelievers, bringing them to bow the knee to the Lord of glory? The parting of the Red Sea was just a shadow of what God has done since, as the knowledge of the Lord continues to spread and cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Time would fail us if we were to expound all the mighty acts of God in church history as men and women and boys and girls were conquered by his grace, of obscure men and preachers who challenged the forces of corruption in this fallen world, of Chrysostom and Augustine and Huss and Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin and Knox and Latimer and Whitfield and Edwards and thousands more. Each of these were humble servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The darkness of Europe was dispelled in a moment when God said, let there be light. And in our own country, a wilderness was transformed rapidly into a stronghold of the Lord. So allow me to call your attention to the fact that these great and mighty acts of God in the past often were things that happened suddenly. While God certainly does act gradually, permeating the corners of the earth as the leaven of the kingdom spreads. Yet he also loves to surprise both his enemies and his people with sudden and unexpected things. When Jonah preached to Nineveh, repentance wasn't gradual. It was instant. It was dramatic. When Peter preached, it didn't take weeks and months to see thousands converted. 
They turned immediately to God and were baptized the same day. How would the corruption of the de- in the days of, of, before the Reformation be overthrown? Hopeless. Dark, darkness. Surely it would take a thousand years to do that. But no, it was the unassuming act of a debate proposition being nailed to the door of the university, and suddenly all of Europe was on fire. The light was turned on and the darkness dispelled in a moment. And some of you. Some of you were suddenly arrested in your sins and changed to the glory of God. Indeed, some of the work was slow and gradual, but for others, the direction was reversed in a moment, in an instant. God is often pleased to use time in his service, but he is in no way bound by that. And this should give us hope today. When things look hopeless, they are not. God's still on his throne. Jesus is still has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he said, therefore, you go. You go represent me. It is a short distance to fall from standing in opposition to God to kneeling before him in humility. Now, as we open up this text this morning, I want to give acknowledgement to John Stott and Derek Thomas's commentaries who were very useful to me in preparing this. So let's begin here with our text. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took an interior road apparently to Ephesus, as he had promised he would do in chapter 18, verse 21. He said he wanted to go back to Ephesus. So both Corinth and Ephesus are strategically important for the church's outreach of the gospel. Remember, Jesus said you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, now we're getting to the uttermost parts of the earth, and these are central places. Paul stayed in Corinth for nearly two years, And he stayed in Ephesus for about three years. As a result, we see the fruit of his labor, for example, in the maturity of the saints in Ephesus, because next to the book of Romans, the epistle epistle to the Ephesians is one of the most doctrinally rich and profound letters that Paul wrote. So at this time, Ephesus was the commercial center of the region. It was the fourth largest city in the empire, and its population was probably somewhere around three to 400,000 people. The Agora, what we just call the market, was the size of seven football fields side by side. That was, that was the public market where you get all your shopping and so forth. The Temple of Artemis, or also Diana, which was uh, also served as an international bank, um, was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It's described by Antipater of Sidon in in these words, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon on which is a road for chariots and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus and the hanging gardens and the colossus of the sun and the huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of um, Mesolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on something so grand. That's what Paul is seeing in Ephesus. Moreover, Ephesus is well known as a center of power, um, magic power, religious power, political power, 
And we are about to see in this text Paul's ministry demonstrate that the power of the name of Jesus was stronger than all of these. So as it opens up, verses 1 through 7, Paul finds a small group of about 12 men who had received John's baptism, but not Christian baptism. You remember that? We learned that about Apollos as well. Apollos obviously knew more than these 12 guys did. Remember Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and gave him some additional instruction, and then he became a teacher, a man mighty in the scriptures. These guys don't know very much. Essentially, they were still living in the Old Testament, which culminated with John the Baptist, and they were still ignorant about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so once they came to understand this through Paul's instruction, they immediately put their trust in Jesus Uh, of whom, of course, John the Baptist had spoken, and they were immediately baptized in the name of Jesus. Then Paul laid hands on them, giving his apostolic imprimatur to what was happening, just as Peter and John had done in Samaria, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And the manifestation of this was that they, just like the disciples in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, spoke in tongues, foreign languages. We don't know what they said, but we know from, from Pentecost that they were speaking the gospel and other people were hearing it in their native languages. John Stott wrote, in other words, they experienced a mini-Pentecost. Better, Pentecost caught up with them, or better still, they were caught up in it as, is prom- as its promised blessing became theirs. So the laying on of the apostolic hands along with tongue speaking and prophesying were special to Ephesus uh, as it was in Samaria in Acts chapter 10 in order to demonstrate visibly and publicly that these particular groups of people, remember it starts out with just Jewish believers in Jerusalem and there's, there's a good bit to overcome as Gentiles are coming in. So these signs of the apostles are being given to be a demonstration, a validation, a verification that the same thing is happening to them that happened in Jerusalem. And so, uh, uh, in order to, again, demonstrate that these particular groups were, in fact, incorporated into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now, but the New Testament does not universalize this. It doesn't say this is what happens to everybody. There are no Samaritans, there are no disciples of John the Baptist left in the world. For example, in the last chapter, we read that, last chapter we read that Apollos had only received the baptism of John, chapter 18, verse 25, but he had also been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke and taught accurately, we're told, the things of the Lord, of Jesus. So this small group of men in Ephesus had not yet believed in Jesus. And again, Luke describes the coming of the Spirit in similar language to that of Pentecost. In verse 6, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So the temporary nature of these events is indicated by the fact that in each of these cases in Acts, and these things always go together, they take place in the personal presence and oversight of one of the apostles, one or more of the apostles. The apostles held a temporary office that was part of the foundational nature of the church. Remember, there's not a New Testament yet. So something dramatic, historic is happening, and God is demonstrating this. We see that unfold throughout redemptive history. 
Pentecost was repeated in some sense, but nothing like this happened when Paul was converted, nor in some of the other conversions that are recorded even in the book of Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch or Lydia or the Philippian jailer, for example, we don't see this same thing happening. So that was our opening event. Then, as usual, Paul followed his pattern in verses 8 through 10, and his evangelistic ministry in Ephesus was similar to what he had at Corinth, and so the first thing he did is he entered the synagogue. That was always his first place to stop. You remember, of course, Paul was a rabbi, and um, here he spoke boldly, we're told, in verse uh, chapter 18, verse 19, uh, in Corinth, but he spoke boldly here for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So for three months, he's attending the synagogue and taking the opportunity to present the gospel, showing them in the Old Testament how all of this was pointing to Jesus. And so Paul, of course, again, as I said, already recognized the teacher, and he used this opportunity uh, arguing about the uh, kingdom in the Old Testament, which was the same thing as arguing that Jesus is the Christ, since Jesus is the Christ who inaugurated the kingdom. Moreover, as we're frequently told, Paul was bold in his presentation of the gospel. He would later write to the Ephesians, and he would ask them to pray in Ephesians 6, 19-20, For me, pray for me that the utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that, that, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So he's not just having little private conversations. He's looking, he's probing, seeking every opportunity to proclaim this to the widest audience possible. He was happy, as we saw in Athens, to go to the market and talk to whoever happened to be there. But he also was looking for and recognized that God was opening up big opportunities. So Paul's burden was to persuade the Jews that the Messiah they looked for had already come and that his name was Jesus. But as in Corinth, so in Ephesus... Uh, the Jewish people, many of them, rejected the good news. Some of them became obstinate and refused to believe, and they publicly, were told, maligned the way. They began to say things that were not true. That, anybody that's been in a church has had that kind of experience. They're a cult. Whatever negative words could be used, they were being warned against them. But this was a turning point for the apostle. And we've seen this over and over in the book of Acts. When opposition arises, rather than it being a negative, turns out to be something rather powerful and positive. And so he turns away from his countrymen, according to the flesh, to fulfill his mission to the Gentiles, which ultimately is what God called him to. And so, once again, the opposition of the gospel is overridden by God, just as we've seen him do over and over in the Bible in the Old Testament, certainly with the resurrection of Jesus. And so, um, uh, the opposition uh, never slows Paul down. God overrides this, and what appears to be defeat, God turns into victory. At the end of Acts, for example, we're going to jump ahead here, we're in chapter 19, but over in chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, Luke describes Paul when he was under house arrest in Rome. He's in jail. Seems like that would be pretty defeating, right? He's awaiting his trial, and here's what it says. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Nothing 
slowing him down. Didn't matter where he was. I'm in prison. I've got people to talk to. I'm in the market. I've got people to talk to. I'm in the synagogue. I've got people to talk to. So Paul then moves his teaching ministry after he leaves the synagogue. Back, we're back to Ephesus now. He, he moves, as he'd done before, down the street. And he goes to a hall that is known as the Hall of Tyrannus. And since uh, Tyrannos means a despot or tyrant, I was just wondering if maybe the guy who owned this or who had his main lectures there, perhaps he had the rep- that reputation as a teacher, kind of like Mr. Bradley. Um, so, um, but I speculate. Uh, some manuscripts have included a reference that the hall was rented to Paul from the fifth hour of the day, 11 a.m., until the 10th hour, or 4 p.m. So he basically rents a lecture hall and begins speaking. So, um, so what, what's clear is that Paul's daily Christian lecturing for two years led to the evangelization of the entire province. Luke refers to a group of people Paul ministered to as Asiarchs, which was a group of men of wealth and influence who were basically elected to promote emperor worship. But now they've been converted. And Acts 19.31 describes them as Paul's friends. These are the very men, before we get to the next episode in Acts 19 next week, uh, uh, these are the men who will urge Paul not to enter the theater in Ephesus where there was a riot brewing. Please don't go. It's not safe. Verses 11 through 20, uh, the title of the sermon today is Unusual Miracles, which is an unusual title because aren't miracles unusual to start with? But Luke says these were unusual miracles. Extraordinary. Liberal commentators are embarrassed by these verses, and they tend to dismiss them as legendary. Paul alludes to these in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where he writes, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. At least four points we'll make here. First, Luke himself is not content, again, to describe these as mere miracles. Uh, They are demonstrations of divine power, but he adds the adjective, uh, the Greek word here, which translates translated various ways. could be special miracles, singular miracles, remarkable, extraordinary, or unusual. Any of those adjectives work. Second, he doesn't regard them as magic either because he sets them apart from the magical practices which the Ephesian believers were soon to confess and renounce. This was not just another magic act. Those things, the magic of Ephesus is evil, as we'll see. Third, the wisest attitude to the uh, handkerchief miracle is neither that of the skeptics who declare them false or spurious, nor that of the mimics, we have plenty of those around today who want to sell you a handkerchief that they wipe their brow with and you can order one if you just write a check. Um, the American televangelist. Um, rather, what we see is that the Bible, that of Bible students who remember both that Paul regarded his miracles as his apostolic credentials and that Jesus himself condescended to the 
to the weak faith of the woman by healing her when she just touched the hem of his garment. But remember, the apostles are acting in place of Jesus. They're representing him. Fourth, in the Gospels, so in the Acts, demon possession was distinguished from illness and therefore exorcism from healing. And so the incident described by Luke regarding the Jewish exorcist reminds me a bit of the showdown between Moses and the Egyptian magicians uh, or of Elijah's showdown with the prophets of Baal. This is a public deal. We see that in the Gospels, right, when Jesus is confronted publicly by Pharisees or others who want to challenge him. Remember, it's not just those people that he's responding to. It's the audience that's watching. And so many people are paying attention here. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Um, I see a bit of dark humor here. Um, It's uh, when the bad guy gets whacked and exposed. And so they're... So there is saving and healing power in the name of Jesus, as Luke made clear, but its efficacy is not mechanical. These are not just magic incantations or words. People can't use this secondhand. And nevertheless, in spite of this misuse of the name, the incident, again, has very beneficial effects because these defeated exorcists had their power degraded and they were quickly humiliated. And this became known both to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and verse 17 says, And fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So again, the opposition backfires. Now remember, Ephesus was known as a major center for magic and the occult. And to help understand how big a deal this was, I thought about something that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Abolition of Man, which many of us just read. Uh, Here's what Lewis says. He's comparing, I'm trying to draw an analogy to some situation we've got in our own day, and I'm going to compare magic and science. Not all science, as you'll see, but certain aspects of science. But what is ultimately this about? It's about power. So Lewis says the serious magical Endeavor and the serious scientific endeavor are twins. One was sickly and died, the other strong and throve, but they were twins. They were born of the same impulse. I allow that some, certainly not all, of the early scientists were motivated by pure love of knowledge. But if we consider the temper of that age as a whole, we can discern an impulse of which I speak. There is something which unites magic and applied science while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, whether magic or science, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. How do I, as a human being, live in the real world. 
And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. Sound familiar? That's the world we live in right now. We don't like the world we live in. I don't like the body I'm born in. I'll just change it. We'll get control over it. We'll get power over it. And the solution, he says, is a technique. And both magic and science in the practice of this technique are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious. One more from Lewis. The true object of the modern scientist is to extend man's power to the performance of all things possible. He rejects magic because it doesn't work. But his goal is the same as that of the magician. Power over the world and ultimately power over men. That was the same culture Paul's in when the gospel comes to it. In other words, both the magic of Paul's day and much of the so-called science of our day has power over men as the ultimate goal. Verses 18 and 19. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. This is voluntary. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, I thought, well, how much is that? So when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, and the drachma is a silver coin representing about a day's wage. Now, if you estimate that conservatively, that means in today's dollar, they burned three to four million dollars worth of books. These were valuable books. N.T. Wright said the most striking example of God's power at work in the region is, of course, the burning of the costly magic books and the confession and the renunciation by those who had been practicing magic again something Luke is glad to emphasize in line with the earlier stories of individual magicians. But the mention of the money in verse 19 ought to run up for us a little warning flag. As we found in Philippi, when the gospel begins to have a financial impact, trouble will be just around the corner. So their example, also the example of these, conver- these conversions and the drama of this led to more conversions. For in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Verse 20, listen, so that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. It won. It was the powerful thing. People were not only hearing the reasoning of Paul and his opening up of the Scriptures concerning the Gospel of Jesus Christ, they were also seeing the powerful results of that Gospel message in the lives of those who embraced it. This is how the kingdom advances. 
And this is still how the kingdom advances. The world needs to hear the gospel and they need to see it in you. They need to hear it from you. They need to see it in you. And together, that is how we overcome the darkness. Light always prevails over darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty works through the apostles and your demonstration of power over all the power seekers. Thank you for sending your spirit to enliven us and to enable us to speak and serve. Thank you for sending your son who sits now at your right hand, the ascended king of glory, who directs his church on earth. Thank you for the honor and privilege of allowing us to participate in the building of your kingdom. And may we be found faithful to this calling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Sin turned the world upside down. And when the gospel came to town, the world thought the Christians were turning the world upside down. In reality, the gospel was making things right side up again. Perspective is everything. David Wells observed that worldliness is what makes sin look normal in in, in any age and righteousness seem odd. The world is headed to hell as she thinks she's pursuing utopia. She needs a 180 degree correction. Many Christians seem to have developed a case of moral vertigo. They're disoriented. The upside-down world is starting to seem normal to them. Heterosexual sins, homosexual sins, same-sex marriage, filthy language, seductive dress, these are cool. We can no longer see anything wrong with these and a host of other similar things. Sin looks normal. Moreover, to speak out against such things is the odd thing. You must be a hater. The world, Paul wrote in Galatians 6.14, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Philippians 2.14-16, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. One more, 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. We come to the table again to renew covenant. Not because God needs to renew covenant. He's been faithful all week. We we haven't. We need to be reminded of who we are and why we're here, that we are followers of Jesus, that we are in the light, We've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and now we are to go forth from here and be light. So we come to eat, drink, and remember 
who we are. May we do so with great joy. Blessed are you, O Father, to you belongs all praise and glory, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. You have guided us all the years of our lives. You've supplied all of our needs, quenched all our thirst, healed all our wounds, and heard all our prayers. Thank you for the faithful men and women who have gone before us, for those who loved you all their lives and who delivered the gospel through the ages, even unto us, so that we might join with them and with our children and with those not yet born to embrace and proclaim our common salvation. Bless this Lord's Day, we pray, and may we learn how to delight and rest in you. Bless our feast, our fellowship, and blessed are you, O Father, whom we serve in your Son, and to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <clears throat>